Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm awfully glad to be here today. And I've got a wonderful show planned for you. Guy Talk's going to happen in a couple of minutes to get things started. And then uh, Beverly Canaris will be joining me in studio. We're going to talk about the book of James, something she's been studying. And I so appreciate her teaching and her ministry. It's going to be wonderful. I hope your week has been going well. I don't know if you have uh, started with any New Year's resolutions. I've got a couple of thoughts about that. I'll probably bring them into Guy Talk. But I've got... Uh, Pastors Tom and Tom here today, and uh, Dr. Peter Kapsner and my friend Patrick Albanese. That's the team, that's the panel, the power panel on Guy Talk today. So let's uh, take 60 seconds and get things started. Do you have a story to share? We'd love to hear how Faith Radio impacts your life. Leave us a message on our Faith Line at 877-933-2484. I love Faith Radio and listen to it all the time, and I'm grateful for all that you do. And thank you for all that you do. The Faith Radio Faith Line, a place to share your story. 877-93-FAITH. That's 877-933-2484. Whether it's the cry of an unborn child or the cry of a heart that's hurting and searching for redemption, life is precious. As you listen to Faith Radio, we can develop a deeper love for all life, and all people, because that's what happens when you develop a deeper love for God. Connecting faith to life, which brings new life. Faith Radio. Glad to have the power panel in studio today. My friend Patrick Albanese, who you usually hear Mondays at 3, is here live in studio. And uh, Pastor Tom Brock, Pastor Tom Parrish, and Dr. Peter Kapsner is the power panel. Gentlemen, hello. Hello. Hi. Nice hello. to have you all here. Tom, let's start, uh, Pastor Tom Brock, let's start with uh, um, bringing on your friend. That yes, you everybody. In. I'm introducing for the first time on the show Pastor Tom Parrish. Great longtime friend of mine. The reason we love Tom Parrish is because both he and I, for many years, were in the very liberal Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Every year we went to the conventions, and a small handful of pastors would get to the microphones and say, why are we paying for abortions with offering dollars in the ELCA Lutheran denomination? Why is the bishop's office promoting homosexuality? And one of the few people that had the nerve to get to the microphone and do that was Tom Parrish. So, hi, Tom. How are you? You're good, Tom. Good to be here today. And, Tom, you would always say at these conventions, what about Jesus? You kept saying that over and over. Yeah, I often went to where Jesus went when the convention began because he was not the topic. The topic That's... was justice and peace. 
and Jesus kind of got let out the back door. So we were working hard, and I don't mean this in any arrogant way, to bring Jesus back in and the Word of God. And we did get receptive people. We found people that responded very well. Mm -hmm. But the leadership at large went on a different track, and most of them told me they were 60s radicals during the Vietnam War, and they're going to remain radicals. And this is this is um, maybe 20 years ago. That denomination was liberal. It is now radically liberal. Mm -hmm. And we could do shows on that, but I won't bother. <laughs> but the social justice, oh, yes. uh, that's Peace pretty, and justice. Peace which and means, justice. Which means uh, anti-racism, which is right, but also uh, big government and uh, climate con uh, justice and gender justice and and gay justice and trans transgender justice. And so, so it's, it's, but it's not real anti-justice. It's okay to dislike guys like us. <laughs> and they did. Yeah. Sure did. <laughs> and uh, Peter, you have uh, experienced a little bit of that as well, haven't you? Well, yeah. You know, it's um, social justice, especially at least in the realm of academia, has really taken foothold in terms of people trying to get their their head around what it is that they're doing. And uh, certainly in my class on sexuality that I've taught for the past uh, 10 years or so in different environments, that is a topic that we qu cover quite often. When you reference the idea of the, G the LGBTQ movement being sort of in, in the stream of social justice, but I think what's interesting about it is that Jesus is maybe sort of seen as uh, kind of this, this symbol of social justice. But in his day, when he was talking about justice, it was something entirely different. It, it, there was no individualism back in the Roman Empire or in Jewish society like we have today, because social justice today is that the individual is primary and should be allowed to do and to think and to feel and to act however they want, and they should be enabled to do so by the government in whatever way possible. And then we think that that's what Jesus was for and what Jesus stood for. Jesus' idea of justice was much more about the idea of peace and shalom and that uh, all evils would be defeated and, and eventually that his realm and his reign would, would be there. And when you look at his first followers, Bill, they certainly were not people who experienced a whole lot of social justice in the way we see it today. They were running through catacombs. They were hiding, having to hide. They were being killed for their faith, all of those sorts of things. So if Jesus came and inaugurated a big society of individualistic social justice, boy, they really missed it, his earliest followers did. Yeah, Western Christianity has kind of gone down a blind alley on this one because they've created a Jesus of their imagination, not the Jesus of the Bible. When I had the privilege of being over in Bangladesh and Nepal and meeting with Christians there, they expect to suffer. They expect that their daughters may be kidnapped and raped. They see this as just normal uh, following Jesus. Wow. And I said to them, is it really worth it to do this? And they give me this funny look like, what's wrong with you? And they said, of course it is. We know the truth. Wow. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I'm just saying that it seems it appears there's very little I have to teach these guys. <laughs> <laughs> that is crystal clear. Yes, yeah, crystal clear. Yeah. All right, uh, Peter, I had sent this to you, and I believe I sent it to Re Re Rebecca. But there's a great line by John Piper. My feelings are not God. God is God. My feelings do not define truth. God's word defines truth. My feelings are echoes and responses to what my mind perceives. And sometimes, many times, my feelings are out of sync with truth. When that happens, and it happens every day in some measure, I try not to bend the truth to justify my imperfect feelings, but... Rather, I plead with God, purify my perceptions of your truth and transform my feelings so that they are in sync with the truth. 
Yeah, that was quite a comment. When you said that to me, I got chills when I first read it. I, I sent it over to my wife and a couple of my children as well because it was so profound. And I think, Bill, what I really appreciated about it is that there can sometimes be, I think, uh, maybe a wrong-headed belief that we should try to take feelings and emotions out of play as if they're inherently and intrinsically bad and wrong. And what I appreciate what Piper did is he said, no, feelings and and desires and passions are all terribly consistent with who God is. He is a wildly passionate God, but his desires, passions, and, and feelings, emotions are all things that are entirely consistent with the beautiful truth and shalom of his kingdom. And so when he loves passionately, it is it is a pure love. It is a love that desires wholeness. It is a love that pursues and, uh, and continues to transform. And so, uh, again, Piper's quote, what I love is that he didn't try to take all of that out of our Christian journey. He said that our passions and interests and, and desires have to come into alignment with that which is true. And so I can certainly have all kinds of desires, interests, and passions that are not at all in alignment with the kingdom. And if I don't critically ask myself some questions about them— I may then just say, well, these are fine, and I should be accepted, and I should be embraced for how I'm feeling and, and what my emotions might be in a given situation, as opposed to saying, why don't I test my current passions and emotions and desires with the truth of God's Word and the truth of God's kingdom? And if they are inconsistent with that, well, then I'm going to ask God to do the hard and slow but beautiful work of helping me change so that my passions are consistent with that. It was, it was really quite a quote. It's one of those things uh, worth reading several times. I agree. Uh, and you know what I thought of when you read that? Mm -hmm. When I was in college, I knew a dear Baptist pastor who was cold in his faith and came to a deeper faith in Christ through the charismatic movement. And he stayed Baptist, what was charismatic, but he warned about something once. And his point was, be very careful. You don't confuse your strong emotions with the Holy Spirit. And he told us that there was this uh, seven-year-old boy, we'll say, in his church that was dying. They had a prayer meeting on Wednesday night. They prayed for his healing. And he said, I got such a strong sense that God was going to heal that boy. We praise God for the healing. And he said, the next morning he was dead. Yeah. And he said, I learned from that not to confuse my strong emotions with the Holy Spirit. And I, you see this periodically. Somebody, and they're a well-meaning Christian, but they get so emotional that God's going to heal Judy, and I know she'll be, you know, up and walking in 10 minutes. You know, well, that's not necessarily the Holy Spirit. That's your feelings. Well, Christianity has become like Photoshop. I've been doing photography a long, long time. I can make a picture look like anything I want with the right filters. And when the filter is our emotions and our desires, and we want to define Jesus out of that or the Word of God or Christianity out of that, it will always come around to the way I want it. It will always come away to whatever the culture is pushing at the moment mm -hmm. if I'm in with the culture. Mm -hmm. To die to self, I'm okay with Jesus dying for me, but to die to self is the hardest thing mm -hmm. there is. Mm -hmm. And most people, even those who claim Christ, don't want to do that. And which is why I read my Bible every day. So I have something to counter my emotions. Yeah. It's starting to sound like that this voice I hear that wants me to be a multi-billionaire <laughs> is maybe not God maybe talking. Not. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. Me but to you be never know. Yes. That's yeah. what that voice is Could saying. Could be Jesus talking. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's... Uh, All right, let me, uh, let me take a little break. Guy Talks Underway, Dr. Peter Kapsner, Patrick Albanese, Pastor Tom Brock, and Pastor Tom Parrish is the power panel today. Let us know if you have a question or something you'd like us to chew on. 877-933-2484. I'll give it again. 877-933-2484. Eight four. Be right back.
Welcome back to the show. Guy Talks Underway. Got a great uh, panel of men in the studio. And Dr. Peter Kapsner, who is calling all the way from Scotland, still there on break, holiday break, and there with his family. And uh, Peter, when are you back? So I'm back the 12th of January. The school season starts again on the 13th. It's been a nice visit. My family's been overseas here doing sort of a homeschool semester study abroad, and I was away from them for a long time, so it's nice to nice to be present in person again. Okay. Just as we were talking about this, Rebecca had a headline that came in that said, New Church of England Archbishop Believes Christian Views on Sexuality Should Be Adapted to Fit Culture. There you go. Yeah, not at all surprised, just given what I experienced over here. I was in a church, uh, the local church that we attend when we're here, and they have a pretty strong university presence, and I was talking with a young pastor there that really just thinks incredibly clearly. I love sitting under his teaching when I'm here, and he was talking about the secularization that's happened here and how the United States really is only maybe a half a generation or a generation behind. So it's really interesting being here, Bill, because those kind of statements are are pretty culturally normative over here, and they're making their way on the other side of the pond, to be sure. Mm -hmm. I would say the Episcopal Church in America is as extremely radical and liberal as what's going over in in Europe. The furthest to the left is the United Church of Christ, the church of anything goes. But right next to them is the Episcopal Church. And then right next to them is the ELCA Lutherans, the PCUSA Presbyterians. So sadly, that stuff has come across the pond. It's like United Church of Christ, time permitting. (laughs) Christ will be here, time permitting. Mm -hmm. We have other messages to deliver. Yeah, Yeah. that's really true. Well, they do, but here's the real problem. Historically, most people don't want to look at this. And my dad always said to me, you know, if you fail to learn from history... You know, you're doomed to repeat it. How true that is. Look at every culture that's advanced in the past, whether it's Romans, whether it's Greeks. They adopted many of these same attitudes toward morality, life, money, people, children. And they eventually were judged. We would use the word judgment. They they would say they collapsed, the societies. Mm -hmm. America has a choice ahead of it. Either our children and grandchildren are going to take the bull by the horns and return to a biblical worldview or they're going to see the demise of America as we know it, because we can't go on this way and be healthy. We're actually kind of like rotting from within. Mm-hmm. All right. It's not that uplifting. No, it's not. No. How, <laughs> how about um, battles and blessings? It seems that it's a, there's a continuum. We go from one battle to a blessing, kind of goes back and forth, doesn't it? Hmm. Well, yeah. Anybody want to chew on that one? Well, I mean... I mean, I mean What's is there? It's called the Titler cycle, uh, where you would I know Rebecca would be familiar with it, um, where civilizations kind of go from this, uh, you, you might say this uh, raw independence um, to dependence and to expectations, and it's almost like you set up. It's I heard it, I heard it phrased a great way, like when it came to socialism, uh, you can vote in socialism, but you have to shoot your way out of it. And that's a, a battle that some of the things that we seem to be setting up societally is that uh, we can't just easily get out of them just as, e- as easily as we get into them. They'll be difficult battles to undo what we're doing right now. And the kind of preaching that drives me nuts is a, a preacher who would say to you, Bill, we don't go from battles to blessings. We go from blessing to blessing to blessing and all this, you know, prosperity <laughs> mm-hmm. stuff that... Yeah. Is has invaded the church. How many helicopters is enough? (laughs) Right, right. I don't have one yet. I I feel bad about this. It goes back to this problem again, though, that you think about it. Every generation 
we have people that are born. Actually, I was down at the uh, Creation Museum, and uh, Ham was speaking, Dr. Ham. And he said, I just had my 13th granddaughter, another little sinner. Boy, isn't that the truth? <laughs> yeah. Because we're not getting better as a people. We're not, cha- you know, Christianity was meant to bring the kingdom of God into this world. We don't do much of that. What we basically do is live for ourselves, live for our own comfort, live for our own well-being until a crisis comes along. But the truth is we're not going to get any better until we're confronted again with the presence and the power of Jesus Christ in ways we cannot even imagine. I don't know what that's going to be, but I think it's going to be a shock to a lot of people. Yeah. You might remember this. Uh, it, was, it was coming to me. I wanted to get it exactly correct. The Ronald Reagan quote that freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. It has to be fought for. Uh, and handed on for them to do the same. And that might be the same thing with the blessings and the battles. It's, I think we take for granted uh, how good we have it, and then we get very lax. We get very lax, and then next thing you know, a church is saying, you know, what's the big deal with maybe looking at sexuality differently? Uh, and then next thing you know, you can't undo what you've done. Yeah, You have and, to fight for know, it every I, generation. The only churches that have gone liberal, heretical, and come out of it were the Southern Baptists and the Missouri Synod Lutherans. Every other denomination that I know of that's gone liberal has never come out of it, and they cling to their new beliefs as the churches shrink and the money stops coming in and they close church after church after church, which I'm glad is happening. The the churches that have abandoned the truth have have shrunk. Well, you know, George Barna said it very well. In their surveys, they found that less than 5% of all pastors surveyed had gifts in leadership. Many of them are great teachers. Many of them are great shepherds. But leadership says, I see a different horizon. I see a different way we've got to go. It's going to run countercultural. It's not going to be good for me. It's not going to be healthy for my ministry. I may lose my job, but that's where we're going. And that's what we don't have in Christianity. We don't have enough leaders that are willing to stand up. I watch these leaders on TV, these Christian evangelists and others, and I am not going one way or the other on them. But they say something, and then the culture comes after them, and they apologize. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I will not apologize for Jesus Christ or his word. It's that simple. And as a result of that, I know how I'm going to be felt about. I know how I'm going to be treated. And I know how I have been treated in Tom, too. Mm -hmm. The reality is, who's our loyalty with? Is it going to be with Jesus or with the culture? And I'm not too crazy about the culture. Mm -hmm. What's amazing that these churches, the, the very people they're trying to appease, are not supporting them. Yeah. You yeah. know, so they lose that, that strong Christian base yeah. you look at uh, the, yeah. by appeasing these people. And then they say, well, thanks very much, but no thanks. And their churches shrink. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like, well, I just wrote a report where there are well. two churches in the Twin Cities. Both claim to be biblical evangelical churches that on, I don't know if it's Wednesday or Thursday night, they open up their church building to Wiccans, witches <laughs> in the Twin Cities, mm-hmm. so they can come in and do their ceremonies, and they don't think anything about it. They think it's a fine thing to do, reach out in the community. Now, first of all, yeah. the Apostle Paul would go out of his mind mm-hmm. on something like that. we just kind of indifferent to it. Yeah. But that's the situation we've gotten into, and it's going to wind up destroying us in the long run. But uh, now, How big a group can that be? I mean, isn't there the back of a coffee shop available exactly somewhere right. for them to meet? <laughs> but, but in the Twin I... Cities alone, there are 22,000 witches that have identified themselves. Hmm. It is a big group of people. And these are, not, uh, these are not the witches that you think, okay, these are uneducated people that are poor and don't know any better. No, they're some of the smarter ones, the poor ones. The reality is these are people that have master's degrees, doctorate degrees, are quite wealthy, but they want the power. And they think they can get the power through witchcraft. And they want shortcuts. And it works for some of them up to a point. Yeah. 
Shortcuts are dead ends, I always say. They are indeed. Huh. So let's talk a little bit about our the start of the new year and what you think as the calendar turns. What are your goals? What are your ambitions? What do you see that you want to do that you didn't get done last year? I know, Patrick, you got a new idea. Well, now, which one are you talking about? The my, patch. The patch. The yeah. patch. Well, yeah, that's actually just an invention to help you get over your New Year's resolutions uh, super quickly without guilt. And I've had a lot of orders for this yeah, patch. Yeah, yeah. The patch, yeah. yeah. I'm also, I, I, you know, I'd like to um, eliminate uh, animosity between me and some friends, and that would start with you guys all apologizing to me right now. <laughs> there you go. We're very sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's always interesting that you can get to the end of a year and say, all right, I'm going to make some changes, and then, the, you know, the magic day hits, and you say, well, what changes am I going to make? It Was it that bad? It wasn't bad. You know, I, I want to have more engagement with my kids, more engagement with my wife, um, and, you know, then get all these projects going and do this and do this and do this. Uh, but um, where, where I fail mostly is in the simple things of, like, trying to – you know, find 15 minutes a day to read a Bible passage. I mean, it's so simple. I mean, every night before I go to bed, I grab usually six books to put on the nightstand because I'm bound. <laughs> I don't know if anybody's nightstand is stacked as high as mine, but it's the, the six books are there and then the iPad comes. And then the next thing you know, I haven't read anything of anything. There's the Bible, dusty and alone, and it gets picked up once a week instead of once a once a day. So... But you read scripture on your iPad all the time and on your phone. I do. Yeah. I have it sometimes read to me just right. because I like the accent. Right, but, right. <laughs> yeah. And people should know about that. Bible.is. Yeah. It's a yeah. free app you put on your phone. When I can't sleep at night, I push the button and yeah. I'm the guy reads the Gospel of Luke or something. I, I love that. I do too. Or Bible Gateway. Uh, Siri will read to you because yes. you can uh, engage oh. the speak function. So right, you right. can just say, hmm. just read this to me. Yeah. Good. One of the things I'm moving into, I work with a lot of young pastors. I've been mentoring other pastors for a long time. I'm watching them get wiped out. I mean, leaving the church, leaving the ministry, losing faith in Jesus. The problem is they're coming out of seminaries, and they've got great theology. They just have no practical experience, and they're getting caught in things they don't know what to do with. So a friend of mine is starting, uh, we have a blog, and we're going to be doing some YouTubing, we think, along the way. And we're going to come out with at least a once-a-week program for 30 minutes just talking about the hard issues, the pastors in the trenches. What are you really running into? What happens when that person of the opposite sex uh, comes on to you and says you're the best person they've ever met in their life? What happens when you get tempted? How do you begin to deal with that? That's what we're headed toward. Yeah, I like it. Let us know Mm -hmm. if you have a question you'd like us to uh, deal with, 877-933-2484. Again, Guy Talk is... uh, Underway, Patrick Albany's Pastor Tom Brock, Pastor Tom Parrish, Dr. Peter Kapsner. Very qualified to take on any questions you might have. Let us know. We'll be back in a minute. studio. Guy Talk is underway. Good questions coming in. Uh, Let me see if I can get them 
ready. Here's one. Now, this uh, is guy talk. I thought it was gut talk, so uh, I got that wrong. Yeah, you got oh. that entirely wrong. All right, yeah, well, thank I'll you, Patrick. See if I can adapt. Yes. Here's a question from a listener. God gives us free will. Do my prayers for loved ones to choose Jesus do anything? I have an answer for this one. Uh-oh, that's Pastor Tom well, Brock. I'm sorry, but when we pray, we're all Calvinists. I, I don't believe in free will. I, I'm quoting Luther. I do not believe I can of my own a strength or reason come to my Lord Jesus Christ or believe in him. But the Holy Spirit is called. In other words, we can't come to Christ on our own. The Holy Spirit is the one who creates faith in my heart. But so you know, a lot of people believe you decide whether you're going to be saved or not. You of your own free will choose Christ. My belief is we're all born sinners. We all would only choose the wrong way. It's only when the Holy Spirit overcomes my unbelief that I come to faith in Christ. But even people that believe in free will, when they pray, they're into predestination. They pray things like, God, please make Uncle Joe a Christian. That's a predestinarian prayer. You, you know, if, if, if it's up to Uncle Joe to, say, to, to do it, well, then why do pray to God for it? But when we pray to God, we're asking God to sovereignly step in and, and do the conversion. I've learned in my ministry that Jesus has a way of smacking me up back of the head sometimes because I would pray for a lot of people to be saved, and I kept getting pushed and, and nudged, why don't you go see them? <laughs> and so once I finally realized I had to go start talk to these people, uh-huh. what a different world that was. Uh-huh. And normally when I really felt the press to go talk to them, the Holy Spirit had already been there. Yeah. They were ready for the fruit. The Lord opened Lydia's heart. He to, did. To receive the things said but, by Paul. You know, yep. I had a gentleman in my first congregation who was an aviator, or he was an, an aeronautical engineer. His wife was an atheist. She never came to church. He said, uh, I said, well, maybe sometime I should come over and talk to her. He said, great. How about Friday? Mm-hmm. So Friday I show up, 7 to 10 o'clock, nothing's happening. I'm in a dead end. And as I'm pushing away from the table, it's like a light bulb went on. And I said to her, how many jet engines have you built? She's an aeronautical engineer. She's thousands. I said, how many have you built without looking at the specs? She goes, impossible, too complex. I said, isn't that interesting? You've been up your mind about Jesus and eternity. You've never read the specs, have you? And she just paused. She's going, oh, my goodness. I said, start with the Gospel of John. Three months later, she got on her knees, received Jesus. Not the end of the story. A year later, her husband's on a flight to Seattle, 44 years old, has a massive heart attack on the airplane and dies on the plane. At the funeral, she spoke. She said, this been a year ago. I'd be the most bitter woman on the face of the earth. But I've met Jesus. And I hate it. And I wish he was here. But I know I'm going to see him again. That was the work of the Spirit, not mm-hmm. me. Amen. Wow. I, I like that, uh, the jet engine analogy. I know we've, uh, Bill, you and I have talked about how you can talk to somebody who is, say, the expert in their field. It, it really works best with experts in their field, the person who's supposed to know the most about, you name it, chocolate chip cookies. And you could say, do you know everything about chocolate chip cookies? And the more somebody knows, the more they will answer, not, cl- not even close. No way do I know everything. There's so much more, more I need to know. And I find it fascinating that people can easily dismiss the Bible, easily dismiss Jesus uh, with just saying, I've heard enough. It's like, wait, you're not, you're not even an expert on this and you've heard enough. And the area that you are an expert on, you admit that you don't know all there is to know. Yeah. How can you so casually and easily dismiss? But in answer to that question, I mean, I pray for people all the time. And so I, I don't know if I'm intervening by saying, you know, and, and it's always Uncle Joe, by the way. <laughs> He's moving kind of slow. Yeah, he is. <laughs> At the junction. At the junction. Yeah. But uh, it's um, sometimes I feel that's for me, too. I mean, it's what I want for Uncle Joe. For certain, it's what I would like for Uncle Joe. Mm-hmm. But uh, and maybe the prayer is eventually going to affect me where it's like maybe I need to sit down with Uncle Joe. Mm-hmm. Good know. point. It's interesting. When Jesus said to the disciples, 
uh, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest to send forth labors into his harvest. And then right after that, Jesus sends them out. <laughs> so they pray for labors to go into the harvest, and then they end up going out themselves. So that's what you just said. Yeah. yeah. I think I pray less for, I pray for salvation for a lot of people, but I pray less for, I pray more for opportunities. An openness, a willingness to listen. Uh, back in when I was in seminary, my wife and I were early married, and one of my uncles, who had been a Ku Klux Klanner, ran bootleg liquor across Lake Erie. He was in Toledo, Ohio. He was a bad man, ran around on my aunt. He was really bad, never went to church. He's dying of throat cancer. He's been a smoker. When I get there, my aunt says, Jan, let me show you my garden. All of a sudden, I'm alone with Uncle Richard, just me and him. And I can't tell you why, but the time was right, and I said, you know, you've been a bad man all your life. And now you got to meet Jesus. Are you ready? And the tears began to flow out of this man. And after a 15-minute talk, he got on his knees with me. He repented of his sins. He died three months later. And my aunt told me for the next 10 years, every time I'd see her, in the 62 years we were married, the last three months after you came were the best we had in 62 years. Mm-hmm. That was the timing of the Lord. Mm-hmm. My problem is when I pray, I've got to learn to listen to the Lord and whom I'm supposed to go see and talk to. Meeting Jesus can be a little on the frightening side because that's the final interview. <laughs> you've gotten through, you've gotten past human resources and a few of the others, but now you are, you go, this is, and none of us yeah, are qualified. ready for this. Yeah. Right. yeah, we're not ready. Yeah. We're not qualified. We're not ready. But even when you think about the, the laws of aeronautical engineering and how there are certain times when the, in order to land a plane properly, certain things have to be in place at a certain specific time. And if the pilot walked through the airplane and said, I know exactly when this should take place, but that's just my opinion. Uh. What do you guys think I should do? Everyone on that plane would say, oh, no, no, do it the way you know you're supposed to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, when it comes to other truths, we're so quick to bend them and make mm-hmm. them what fits our lifestyle or what we want to believe. It's just not. It's very convenient that the yeah. things we choose to find in the Bible that maybe aren't hard and fast truths, not written in stone, are are own personal sins you know it's 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 i always find that with me that i go this can't be that bad because that's what i do yeah that's right my dad was a home builder so i grew up building homes with him in school and i learned to do some electrical work i am not an electrician but boy were there immediate consequences when i did it bad yeah Yeah. and that's the problem with people there aren't immediate consequences i mean if you're on an airplane there's an immediate consequence when you're coming into the runway but for most people hey i got tomorrow i've got next week i've got a long life ahead of me what's the big deal but if they are literally on their deathbed, if they're literally at the last moment, uh, I love being there with people at that moment and been with a lot of them at the moment they died. And I tell you, I've run into nobody that doesn't want to talk about what comes next. Well, you're born on your deathbed. <laughs> Essentially, I mean, it's going to happen. The, yeah. day, the day will come. You just don't get to know. And yeah. that's, that's maybe the frightening prospect that should old, motivate us more. There's the old saying, um, he who waits till midnight to repent often dies at 1130. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a bummer. All right. Uh, <laughs> Isn't that a cheerful thought? Yeah, that's a Put cheerful that over thought. your refrigerator. If you go by the nuclear clock, it's actually yeah. 11, 29, 29. And, and I heard yeah. you preach for three years like this. It was incredible. Yeah. I yeah. loved it. Yeah. Hell, hell, hell. Here's a, here's a question from my wingman, Terry, and I'm going to direct this starting with you, Peter, because you haven't uh, talked in a while. My question is about <laughs> replacement theology. I understand how it came about and the source behind it, but how since 1948, when Israel was restored as a nation, a miraculous biblical fill fulfilled prophecy, does the argument have any legs to stand on? Boy, I always love Terry's questions, and, and that, you know, this this is, <clears throat> you can look at it from a variety of angles, but I think if listeners aren't familiar with the phrase replacement theology, 
It really has to do with whether or not Israel has a legitimate claim on a physical land, and that the the promised land that was provided for them in the Old Testament <clears throat> that we that we saw some sort of renewal or reestablishment in 1948 when they won the war and took that land again, or on the flip side of it, has Israel essentially been abolished as part of God's covenant plan? Did they fail in their rejection of the Messiah uh, those 2,000 years ago, and thus God moved his sort of promises and his covenants over to the Gentiles? And I think to the latter, I, I don't know about the physical land space of it, because Jesus's kingdom is an eternal kind of kingdom that transcends boundaries and barriers, so you can't say for sure that it can be contained just in, in one parcel of real estate in the Middle East. But on the flip side of it, I think it's really dangerous to suggest that God has done away with the Israelite nation and has made his covenant only towards the Gentiles, because the very earliest followers of Jesus, post the empty tomb, post this new era in which we are in, were primarily Jews. And the gospel was going to go first to Jerusalem and then to Samaria and then into the ends of the earth. And so there has been the idea of Jews and Gentiles being part of a kingdom that really does transcend national and international barriers, I think, is the point of that. So I think people read too much into the idea that because Israel took the land again in 1948, that it was the fulfillment of a promise. And it's actually going to be a promise that's sort of a harbinger of perhaps the end of the world in which some people would interpret Revelation to suggest that at the end, Israel is going to be surrounded on all four sides. There will be no more allies. There will be no more United States to help them. They will be at the end of all ends of all ends. And in that moment is when Jesus is going to return, and he's going to return first to the eastern gates of Israel and uh, and set those people free, and then his renewal will will take place throughout the entire world. It's a really interesting line of thought, but I think it has a lot of holes in it when you start looking into it. And and I want to say, too, I think Christians of goodwill can have wildly different opinions on this. What troubles me the most is when someone who holds one of these views kind of looks at you like you you are so unbiblical to believe that. No, these are difficult issues. I think if you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul, the Jewish apostle, will tell you that there is going to be a future for the Jews. First, the Gentiles come in, lots of Gentiles get converted. But then read Romans 11, there will be a conversion of Jews to Christ before the end. So it, I, I don't think God is done with the Jews. That doesn't answer the question of do we need to then, therefore, politically support the state of Israel. That's a whole different question. And that's where I think people get too opinionated on one side or the other. But you look where evangelical theology has gone in this whole topic. Um, you may as well know it. I'm a Jesus freak. I don't hear a lot of talk about Jesus among the end-time teachings. I go to conferences. I hear people on the radio and elsewhere. Jesus hardly comes in the discussion. It's all about Israel. And I hate to say it, Israel saves no one. No one. And the point is, only Jesus is the Savior, and he seems to be getting off track in this whole discussion. And we keep talking about Israel and what's going to happen there, but we're not talking about what Jesus wants to do in the midst of that. And for me, that's kind of the key to the whole thing, because without Jesus, even the Jews are lost. However, I have friends who are evangelical pastors that chide me and tell me, when you go to Israel, don't you try to convert a Jew. God has a different plan for them. No, no. And they sincerely believe that. No. And I'm saying, what about Jesus? <clears throat> well, he's got a different plan. That's not biblical. No. The only way to be saved for Jew and Gentile is through Christ. Yeah. So do you hear discussions about personal holiness very often? 
We don't. Well, do I we? think, you know, Bill, yeah. I, I'll say this. I know at least from you sort of look at some of the trends of the last uh, 20, 25 years in the church world is that I think there's a, an unfortunate sort of association between the word legalism and the word, holy, uh, word holiness. And I think for very understandable reasons, maybe about 20 years ago, the church began to experience a really significant backlash. And by the church, I mean more evangelical conservative types churches really uh, experienced a lot of backlash because they were very concerned with behavior management and sort of how people appeared and how people looked and how people acted. And there was a real disconnect between what we observed in people's lives in their outside world with what was actually happening in the realm of their heart or maybe in their private lives. And so the church got accused of a lot of hypocrisy for very understandable reasons. And the hypocrisy was based on the idea that the church was really legalistic and really strict and, and really worried about things like if you went to an R-rated movie or you played a game of cards or uh, you had hair longer than your your you know shoulders if you're a male, a lot of these different kinds of sort of boundary markers. And there was a big backlash away from some of that, again, because the hypocrisy of all of it hit. But I think what got lost in that is the idea uh, that holiness is not something that is necessarily legalistic. Holiness is the idea that my life is free and set apart from the ways of sin insofar as possible in my life. So there's not destruction happening in my life and in the lives of people around us. That's very different than legalism. We're talking about whether or not we're walking in increasing freedom from the destructive power of sin. Well, it really comes down to, are you dealing with fire insurance? Or are you dealing with a relationship with Jesus? If you're into fire insurance, then holiness or legalism could take on a big, huge meaning. But 48 years ago, my wife and I got married. I married her right out of college, and I flipped for her. Something flipped inside of me, and it stayed flipped ever since. I still think she's the greatest woman in the world. I've asked Christians over and over, have you flipped for Jesus? Have you flipped to the point where you're willing to change your behavior, not to see if you're good enough to get into heaven, not to see if you're like that, but because you love him, because you want to be like him, you want to think like him, you want to act like him. And I think the problem I see is that most Christians don't think in those terms, and I don't hear much preaching in those terms. We talk about a personal relationship. But we don't talk about it in a way that people understand. They don't understand what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Oh, yeah, I'm my sins are forgiven. I'm dying when I go to heaven. No, how does, that re- how does that touch you in the way you talk to your spouse? How does that affect you the way you look at other people sexually? You know, and are you doing it to honor him or are you doing it to gratify yourself? When people finally get the grasp on that you're doing it for Jesus, it makes all the world a difference. Well, let's take a little break. Guy Talk's underway. We've got one more segment. Let us know if you've got something you'd like us to uh, to talk about. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-93-FAITH. Just had another great question come in. We'll be back in 90 seconds. questions coming in. Let me uh, start with this one, gentlemen. Um, can you guys discuss Luke sixteen sixteen and the use of the word force? Here's the verse. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. Who'd like to lead off? 
or I think it can be also translated, violent men are taking it by force. And the this is why we all need some good Bible commentaries in our house. Because there now and then you come across a passage and you really can interpret it two different ways. And it's difficult. And this is one of them. It can either mean violent men are taking it by force and they're going to kill John the Baptist and, and you know, Herod did what he did with the, the infants and, and Jesus will be killed by the Romans. It either means that or it means sinners are joyfully, uh, violently rushing into the kingdom and, and this fair, you know, the harlots and the tax collectors, these people are getting saved into the kingdom. And it's a hard call to know which of those two. You got to look at the context, but even sometimes that doesn't help. So this is, I'd have to get my commentaries out, but this is one of the tough verses. Yeah, this is, um, that's exactly right, Tom. I can't uh, under or overestimate the importance of having several biblical commentaries sort of at your fingertips when you're studying the Bible. I know that with my students, the first paper that I assign them, that's sort of an exegetical or biblical expository paper, I require them to have five different commentaries to look Mm -hmm. at a passage from five different angles, just to sort of somehow, I say this phrase often, but sort of get into your your biblical time machine and try to, in the best you can, walk around the Mediterranean world during the time of Jesus to better understand maybe what's being said. And, And in this case, Again, with you, Tom, I I don't know that you can say with definitive certainty what the right interpretation is, but I think it's helpful to note that the Gospels were all written for for very different reasons. Mark was writing to emphasize that Jesus really was the Son of God, and that's a theme that runs through his entire Gospel. Matthew has been being written to Jewish people, and and trying to prove that Jesus really was the king of a kingdom that they had rejected. John is writing to combat Gnostic heresy, and Luke, from which this passage is, is, is called out here on the show, is writing primarily to a Gentile audience. He's writing to a guy named Theophilus, is how his gospel opens, and it's meant to be a gospel that is written to Gentiles to show them that, yes, the kingdom actually does belong to you as well. And so the New Living Translation of this uh, passage says, "...until John the Baptist, the law of Moses, and the messages of the prophets were your guides. But now the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone is eager to get in." And that second interpretation that you offered, that the kingdom suddenly was exploding open for all the people who had been shut out by sort of the Jewish legalistic authorities, and now the harlots and and the tax collectors and the sinners, that the gates were broken open and everybody could get in. That is a theme that runs itself consistently over and over again through the Gospel of Luke. It's why in Jesus in Luke chapter five, the four and five, the synagogue preaching, the Jews wanted to kill him when he said that the message of the good news was coming for the Gentiles. And so it seems to me that my best shot at that passage is people were so excited that they actually had an opportunity to get into God's kingdom, that they're elbowing their way into it. And then that's part of why the crowds are following Jesus the way that they were. I heard one other interpretation for what is worth. Um, how many times did Jesus say, Shh, don't tell anybody who I am? Mm-hmm. He said that many times because their understanding of the Messiah had nothing to do with God the Father's understanding of the Messiah. Their understanding was a new king like David, kick out the Romans, reestablish the Jewish empire, reestablish you know, rule. Jesus said, that's not the kind of Messiah I am. You know, I'm a Messiah, an Isaiah 51 Messiah who comes to suffer and die. And so you think about it, Jesus was continually being pushed by his disciples and being pushed by the people to take up the crown, to declare 
the Romans to get out, to declare to the religious leaders of the day that he was the king. (laughs) And I think you've got that battle going on as well. How it all ties together is another matter, but I think that plays into it. And that's why he that's why he tells people he he'll heal somebody and say now don't tell anybody because their understanding of the Messiah was so wrong he didn't want that to go around until after he died when he rose from the dead it, that's when it, it goes out but not much before. All right, here's another question that came in uh, from a listener. A question for Guy Talk: Who decided the Bible was the Word of God? Hmm. Well, those are the councils from the fourth century. It's places like the councils of Nicaea when the church gathered together. Um, and and it's, there's different uh, ways in which the Bible is compiled, both Old Testament and New Testament. But I, I'm speaking primarily of the New Testament, is that there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters that were circulating around the New Testament world. There were a lot of different gospels besides the four that we have in what's called the canon or sort of the closed reality of Scripture. And so who decided that those 29 passages were seen as sort of uniquely inspired or books uniquely inspired versus all the other letters and all the other gospels that were going around? Well, that was the work of a lot of the bishops of the different churches in those centuries that gathered together, and they used the criteria saying that if they had a letter, it had to be authentically written by a close associate or eyewitness of Jesus, uh, was one of the criteria. It had to have messages that transcended uh, culture and time, that it was something that would be beneficial to the Church for a number of generations. And, and they continued to go down a list of criteria like that, and from that place they ruled out a lot of different books and, and letters of the Scriptures. But it's pretty interesting when, when you look through the history of it, even as recently as Martin Luther, he was somebody who didn't think the canon of Scripture should have been closed with those 29 books of the New Testament. He thought that Revelation and Hebrews and Jude, uh, among a few others, should have been thrown out of the biblical text because he didn't see that they were in full alignment with his main theology, which was justification by faith. And of course, he lost that argument. The 29 books have stayed in the New Testament. But that really is when it happened in the fourth century councils when Rome began to become a Christian empire is when they made some of those decisions. And it was... uh, I mean, I think safely said, led by God's Spirit, to say these are the books that are inspired and should be here in this canon for the generations to come. As a Lutheran pastor, Peter, I don't, I don't think Jesus, I, excuse me, I don't think Luther, uh, whoops, I don't think Luther, whoops, I tell you, uh, I, don't think, uh, I don't think Luther was ever for throwing them out of the canon, canon but he, he said, for instance, James is an epistle of straw because he didn't like, but but I think I, I'm not sure, but I think he came around to things differently as he got older, and yeah, that was that was not good. But but we want to maintain too. You're right, Peter, about the canon and the councils, but Scripture has always been Scripture, and then the early church had to sort out: is the Gospel of Thomas on the same level as the Gospel of Luke, and you read the Gospel of Thomas, it's a strange thing. Anybody reading it today who know the, who knows Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would read the Gospel of Thomas and say, this is a different Jesus. Yeah. So that was part of their... And it was always Scripture. The, the books were always Scripture, but they didn't become Scripture because the bishop said so. They were always Scripture, and then they were... Uh, you know, recognized as such. Isn't it interesting? Uh, you've got the books in the New Testament and not one mention of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. 
And the temple figured into the whole theology of who God is and where God visits and where God is. Mm -hmm. None of that shows up there. So I've contended for a long time that all the books in the New Testament that we recognize, and the early church did too, were written before 70 AD. Because not even John's revelation talks about the temple in Jerusalem being destroyed. And it has been. And it was destroyed then and has never been rebuilt for 2,000 years. Because the book of Hebrews, which we rarely study in the church... What we really should is what I call the transitional book from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. That book talks about the real temple is in the Lord Jesus Christ and his people. I like. Yeah, and, yeah. and I think what I appreciate about this conversation is that um, I think we often sort of perceive to be denominations that may be liberal as sort of being stupid and idiotic and self-centered and, and all of those sorts of things. And while I don't agree very often with my brothers and sisters that are in liberal denominations, I will say that there's been a lot of critical scholarship done over the last uh, maybe 20 or 30 years, and there might be some understandable reasons why people take issue with some of the things that we've historically believed. Now, I don't think for a second their arguments hold water, but they do need to be explored and analyzed. And I will say this, I know a lot of people in the circles in which I run and a lot of my students have been deeply impacted by views that try to deconstruct the inspiration of scripture. And I think it's worthwhile pursuit to go back into the history like this and wonder about how they were brought about and was it legitimate? I think it was. It's worth a conversation. Thank you so much, gentlemen. You have helped me feel smarter, taller, and better looking. (laughs) Thank you so much. I was happy to bring the average age in the room up while bringing the average IQ in the room down just a little bit. Thank you so much. Patrick Albanese, Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastor Tom Brock, Pastor Tom Paris. You've been a delight. That wraps up Hour 1. Guy Talk, if you missed any of it, go to MyFaithRadio.com. Check out the podcast. Coming up next, a full hour with Beverly Canaris. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.